Never miss a single podcast by signing up for our newsletter at myfeminineheart.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to a very special podcast of My Feminine Heart. So uh, joining me today, I have author and editor of this book, Bodies and Barriers, um, queer activists on health. And this is a compilation of 26 different authors that has been edited together by Adrian Schenker. Adrian, thank you so much for joining me today. It's my pleasure to be here with you this morning. Um, so we had an article in our local paper a few weeks ago where um, Adrian had been doing book launches and book parties throughout, I would say, what, South Central Pennsylvania. And he had come to our town where one of the activists who is featured as an author in this book um, was speaking. And Adrian came, he did a beautiful uh, reading from several of the chapters of the book. I was so blown away with one, how beautiful you are as a writer and a speaker, but also how beautiful the writers are and the information that they have all shared. You've really pulled together like 26 different activists in this, in this book. Yeah, uh, Bodies and Barriers is a collection of stories and essays. And these are activist essays that are intended to be a response to the broken healthcare system and how LGBT people uh, of all kinds and throughout our lives are uh, negatively impacted by the broken healthcare system. So these are stories, they're our stories. They, they, they share the journey of LGBT lives and talk about how all of us, when we tell our stories, can empower the rest of our entire community to come together to challenge our healthcare system to do better, to respond better to our lived experiences. Yes. And as soon as I had met Adrian, I knew I was going to have him on the show. I think your book is amazing. I have thoroughly enjoyed reading it. Um, but in lieu of the Keystone Conference canceling, I learned that he was supposed to be um, a presenter, that you had a, a workshop launching your book at the Keystone Conference. And since we are doing everything we can to create as much content right now for those who are missing out on the Keystone experience, um, Adrian agreed to meet with me. This is our first ever podcast via Zoom. <laughs> um, so this is the quarantined version of My Feminine Heart. So Adrian, um, I'd like to introduce a little bit of who you are. You, uh, you're quite the queer activist. You founded the Bradbury Sullivan LGBT Community Center in Allentown. And when we had spoken, it was very interesting to me uh, when you had shared that originally um, healthcare was not really a big concern for you, but then something happened and this became a huge part of your advocacy. Yeah, I think back to 2008 during the presidential campaign that year when uh, uh, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton and John McCain, every conversation that they had to the public, every debate that they had focused on healthcare, um, healthcare reform, healthcare insurance, healthcare coverage. Um, and as a college student then, I was fairly privileged with access to my own health insurance. I had been on my mom's insurance my entire life. Um, I had always um, had you know, good experiences with healthcare providers. And I didn't really understand how LGBT people might have it differently. Uh, and that was my own privilege that was coming out. But uh, fast forward a bunch of years and in 2014, um, we collected data in Pennsylvania for the first time that 
demonstrated pervasive health disparities impacting the LGBT population. Uh, and then uh, when I was starting to work on this book, shortly before that, um, I went to a dermatologist for a baseline screening for uh, skin cancer. And I was surprised that at every step of the turn, every step of the journey through that medical appointment, I felt like the well-intentioned doctor and his staff uh, did everything possible to make it clear that patients like me were not the patients that they were there to serve. Um, from restrictive intake forms to unnecessarily restrictive intake forms, I should say, to um, you know, uh, a waiting room environment where there was literally a Fox News debate about gay rights on the television screen in the waiting room. Uh, it just made it very uncomfortable and not wanting to be in that space. So I thought about you know, my own experiences and the experiences of so many of my friends and colleagues and really decided that a book was necessary to tell our stories collectively, to try to make sure that healthcare professionals, policymakers, students in health professions, and everyday activists would have stories that they could use to improve the care for all of us. What I love about your book is it's not just informative for the person reading it, but it can also be a tool to educate others. And that's how we further ourselves in the world is by patiently educating those around us. And when, you know, when we had spoken, when we first met, I had asked you, um, what can people do? You know, a big thing, a big theme of my feminine heart is advocacy, volunteering, becoming a part of the bigger community. How can somebody reach out? So when somebody is reading this book, what would you recommend that they do if they want to start becoming an advocate for their own health care or for the health care of other members of the LGBT community? Well, so for LGBT people who read this book, I would suggest that telling our stories is incredibly powerful. So share yours. Uh, share your stories of healthcare bias and discrimination so that the system itself can hear that story and it can be improved and, and it can work better for the rest of us. Um, many uh, healthcare professionals want to do the right thing and sometimes they're unintentionally uh, using language or creating a system that doesn't work for LGBT patients. So telling our stories is powerful. For allies in the community, uh, for healthcare professionals who might read this book, for policymakers who make policies that impact LGBT lives every day, um, think about how our stories are, are are just our stories, but so many people have similar stories. So many of us have had similar experiences. And one thing that I found as I uh, was going around the country sharing stories from this book uh, before our period of self-isolation, um, we, uh, we kept hearing that, wow, I've had a similar experience to, uh, to this author in that book. Um, and it's such a strong reminder that these stories are, uh, are just examples of the huge amount of healthcare bias and discrimination that LGBT people survive through bravely. And, uh, and, and that we have a role to play as activists to make the system work for all of us. I would say um, that for somebody like myself who read this book and was um, incredibly impacted in it, and I, you know, one thing that anybody could do buy this book and share it with your doctor. Share it with people who are in healthcare because it points out big things and little things that make a difference. Like you're saying, walking into a waiting room where they are debating um, you know, gay rights. Yeah, uh, there are so many simple things. So for example, I'll share a couple narratives from the book if that's okay. Oh, so, please do. 
Elisa uh, Bowman writes uh, in a chapter in this book called Navigating Pediatric Care uh, for Transgender Youth. Um, she writes about uh, how when her son came out to her and her family as transgender, um, she had conversations with many people in her life, um, from her family to uh, you know her friends' families uh, to uh, her kids' parents' friends' families, right? So uh, many, many people were were learning about this important change in her family's life. The one person she chose not to tell was her pediatrician because of uh, things that the pediatrician didn't do instead of what he did do. He didn't create an affirming uh, environment where she felt that he would be a welcoming provider. Instead, she looked for a different uh, LGBT affirming pediatrician and she found one about an hour away. So that's just oh. one example. Oh, and I don't, I don't want to interrupt, but that chapter, it really, um, really went to my heart. And when she talked about, she talked about ghosting with the doctor and not sharing that. She did mention that she tried opening the conversation about her child being uh, transmasculine and the doctor shut it down each time. You know, she would talk about her child having issues with not wanting to go to the bathroom at school and it would be completely ignored by her primary, her child's primary pediatrician. Yeah, she shares that it would be uh, similar to a child exhibiting uh, symptoms of type of type uh, one diabetes, and the doctor not bringing that up as a as a possible um, you know a possible thing to to look into more. So um, that's one narrative. Another example from this book is uh, from Laura Jacobs. Laura is an amazing activist and also actually a healthcare provider herself. In, in New York, and uh, Laura writes about an experience with an ear, nose, and throat doctor where, um, you know, she went in because of, you know, typical ear, nose, and throat issues, and as she's sitting uh, in the room, um, in, in the, the, uh, the clinical room, uh, the doctor comes in with uh, a medical intern and immediately turns to the intern and says, in quotes, Laura's a trans, didn't the surgeons do a great job? Laura is completely clothed, and the, the doctor had never seen her um, her body below the neck. So uh, she had also never had facial surgeries. So the doctor is making assumptions about her body, outing her without permission to another person, um, probably trying to make an affirming comment and not realizing how offensive it was. And uh, you know. Um, and Laura is also in recognition that, in her words, this is a doctor who's about to wield a knife inside of her throat. Um, so uh, doesn't necessarily know how to respond in that instance. And, um, you know, that's another example of the kind of uh, negative experiences that LGBT people have had um, from even well-intentioned care providers. Um, Laura says in her chapter, we don't need you to be experts in transgender health. We don't expect you to be experts in transgender health but we need you to listen better, right? We need you to, uh, we need you to listen better. We need you to ask the right questions. She even says, satisfy your curiosity on the internet like everyone else, right? Don't, don't ask your patients to, to be your teachers. Um, find out the information you need uh, and provide the best care that you can. Yeah. So in those two stories, we hear, you know, negative experiences of, experiences that have happened to people, but I, I want to just really say out loud, this is not a negative book. It's actually a very positive book. It's oh, 100% agree with you. Yeah. How do we take these experiences that have been sometimes traumatic, 
for LGBT people and, and turn them around and say, this is a healthcare system that can be fixed. We all are gonna work to fix it. And that's why we want our doctors to read these stories. We want legislators to read these stories. We want insurance companies to read these stories because when they hear about our stories, it's our hope that they will take action in the areas where they can to improve care for all people, including our LGBT uh, community. Yeah, just that small part where the doctor said, Laura's a transgender. I mean, uh, categorically pinning her as like this type of person. Um, you know, her chapter was so powerful. And there are some, I know you didn't want to sit here and read parts of the book as you might do on a book tour, but there are some things in here that were so powerful. And to me in your intro alone, uh, your quote that stigma is about other people making moral judgments about your worth and how the doctor, oh, go ahead. Actually, a quote from Sean Strew. Mm -hmm. who's in your book as well yeah 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 who's an hiv activist he's um what chapter 18 yes yes um but yeah so right there it's like he's creating the stigma around laura and i loved this other quote that you have um it's from a 14 year old youth program participant from a health clinic in dc where the 14 year old child said wellness is about surviving a world that was not created for you right there I think that speaks so powerfully of your book and you know what I love too is um, the people that you chose to share in this book and what I don't know if we actually mentioned the structure of this book is brilliant so you went through and you divided the book into sections so that it's like the growing age it, because you experience healthcare from the day even before you're brought into the world through till the day that you die and how um, you structured this book was throughout the ages from children young adults um, older, mature adults, and then senior citizens. And I think that that's really powerful in itself. But the people that you chose are out there advocating. You know, you talked about Laura is in healthcare. And in her chapter alone, you know, she brings out some startling information. Uh, let me see, what do I have here? Uh, so at one healthcare facility, where in the first two and a half years that they were offering gender affirming surgery, when you, when you talked about Adrian earlier, how um, intake forms can unnecessarily be restrictive. This program, this healthcare facility was so restrictive on their intake information that even though 2,000 people had applied over this two and a half year period to be, to have a gender affirming surgery, they only allowed 24 people to have it. And then of those almost 2,000 other individuals, they were just left completely abandoned, stigmatized, and rejected from this healthcare facility. Yeah, and you know, th this is a situation that a lot of uh, people are thinking about right now in Pennsylvania and beyond, as many hospitals are delaying um, what's often called elective surgeries um, because of you know the feeling of not wanting to overwhelm our healthcare system, which is important to think about. It's also important to think about the impact of asking people to delay gender-affirming care uh, that, that has been scheduled and that they've been looking forward to, and the mental health implications of that for our community. Um, it's stories like in this book that make it very clear that uh, gender-affirming care is primary care, that, that trans care is primary care, that, uh, that health care that LGBT people need 
is that is the care that we need for our lives. And um, uh, and certainly in a time of a global pandemic, we can all understand the need to not overwhelm the healthcare system. But we can also understand that uh, that there's been a long and storied history in this country of healthcare bias and discrimination, and that LGBT people, uh, our lives. Um, have experienced lots of healthcare challenges, and we need the care as best as we can get it. Um, and, uh, and and stories in this book try to try to lay that out for us. Try to say that pervasively throughout our lives, we've experienced healthcare bias, and what we're looking for is a healthcare system that's responsive to our lived experiences. So, um, in chapter four you have a written by Emmett Patterson, who's an advocate in sex education for the LGBT community. And some of the things that Emmett shared as a, as a trans man are really startling. Um, so in one of the parts that he shared, only 24 states, including DC, mandate sexual orientation education. 12 require discussion of sexual orientation. Only nine require that that talk be inclusive. And three of the states um, only allow negative information on sexual orientation in that class. And how, when you're looking at teaching young people, any young person about sex education, that LGBT people are comp often completely excluded. You know, when they talked about, when Laura talked about being referred to as a transgender, you know, Emmett talks about how his doctors completely avoided that he was a potentially sexual person, that being trans, he had a sexual side. And so when you're talking about, you know, a lot of times required health care. So when Emmett went through that year of required uh, psychotherapy to begin the transitioning process to get to the hormone therapy, not one of his healthcare professionals asked him about sexual health. And sexual health concerns. And as a college student, that resulted in um, not wanting to use condoms, ending up with a pregnancy after starting to take their hormone therapy, ending up with a miscarriage, um, all the potential that they could have received for uh, sexually transmitted diseases, all because of the provider's discomfort with discussing that sexual health. And for Emmett, um, he says that he was never even asked once if he could possibly one day want to be pregnant until the first vial of hormones was placed in his hands. Yeah, I mean, and, and so in Emmett's chapter, which is incredibly powerful, and uh, Emmett is a brilliant writer uh, and also a brilliant activist. In, in his chapter, he talks a lot about um, the importance of LGBT health being thought about as broad that school board members have a role to play in LGBT health when they uh, consider the curriculum that youth receive in public schools when it comes to sex education. And Emma talks about the need for peer-to-peer -peer queer youth sex education because so many people in the LGBT community never get sex education that relates to their lived experiences and their lives. Um, so that's the first uh, thing about his chapter. But then Emmett shares some, some personal information from his own life um, as a trans person and as a queer youth, um, experiencing um, a lack of information that's provided and also um, 
you know, uh, challenges in his life because of that lack of information. So, uh, you know, Emmett is an example of the kind of activism that our community needs. Someone who will who will speak up and share their own, sometimes deeply personal stories so that uh, policymakers from school board members to the White House can hear it and so that healthcare providers can really do better. Um, uh, Emmett's experiences in this book, um, you know, are, are significant because Many LGBT youth never receive LGBT inclusive sex education in their lives. And it's one of the reasons we see higher risk factors in the LGBT community when it comes to um, uh, likelihood of contracting various STIs. Uh, it, it's, it's simply because of the lack of sex education that's made available. And, this, and the type of sex education being uh, based in the lived experiences of LGBT. Yeah, it's, it can be so damaging starting with a young person. Everybody needs to be educated as much as possible from the beginning. You know, I'm, I'm sure for a lot of parents when they have a child who has gender dysphoria, you're learning how to deal with it as you go and having proper um, healthcare professionals help guide you along the way and peers help guide you is incredibly important. You know, Preston, um, and help me with his last name, you said it to me, it's Heidelbridal. Heidelbrittle. Heidelbrittle. So Preston Heidelbrittle talks about being transmasculine and binding. And one of the things that I did not know before hearing him speak at your book launch was that if you are binding improperly as a young person, you could end up doing permanent damage to your body, which would prevent your ability to have um, surgery on your chest later in life. Yeah, so Preston uh, very bravely shares a story um, uh, about the importance of binding for transmasculine youth. And binding, um, for viewers who may not be aware, is, um, you know, a way for transmasculine people to, uh, to, you know, hide their breasts in, uh, you know, underneath their clothes so that they would appear more masculine. Um, and the safe way to do that is through use of a commercial binder and through the correct use of a commercial binder. Uh, Preston talks about why, why we shouldn't use duct tape, why transmasculine use should, should try it to only use commercial binders. But he also asked important questions. Why are commercial binders not covered by healthcare insurance companies? Why do pediatricians not talk to transmasculine youth about the importance of safe binding and the strategies for how to do it? Um, instead, Preston talked about how many transmasculine youth learn from each other and from the internet. And while there certainly are great resources available on the internet, there's also inaccurate health information that's presented on the internet. So uh, Preston asked, how come this information is not presented in the way that people would access other accurate information for, for their health? And while many prosthetics are covered by insurance companies, uh, commercial binders are not, and they cost about $30 each. Um, which uh, might not sound like a, a lot to many people that, that don't need to pay for, for a number of them, but uh, it's an undergarment and it requires being you know, washed regularly and one person can't really have only one commercial binder because you, you wear it every single day. Uh, so Preston talks about the need for it to be covered by insurance just like other prosthetics would. So that's just another example of how the healthcare industry, the healthcare systems that we have is leaving uh, queer people, transmasculine people, um, all people behind, and how our stories, Preston's story about his own experience as a transmasculine young person, um, can hopefully be heard by insurance company executives, uh, state insurance commissioners, and hopefully uh, that change can be made so that um, 
you know, commercial binders can be made available to, uh, to trans masculine people, especially people that might not be able to afford one or more on their own. Yeah. And I love um, that we're kind of circling back to the cost of what it can be to be a trans person, um, you know, going through transition, especially if, you know, starting as a young person doing hormone therapy to prevent puberty. And we're talking a lot about, you know, you had mentioned the negative experience that you had when you just went in for, you know, a dermatological appointment that could have been skin cancer, um, but how, you know, the waiting room wasn't inviting, the intake forms weren't inviting. One of the things that I love about that in the chapter from Alyssa Bowman, when she found the right physician for her, she said she walked in the door and she knew right away that this was gonna be their new home. And so for those of you who are watching, I would love to share some of the points from this chapter that she made. So if you're looking around your doctor's office, if you're talking to healthcare, and it's not just healthcare professionals too, it's also a health, your health insurance agent, anybody who's in this field, how can they be more inclusive and more welcoming? And things that she noticed right off the bat you know, rainbows, um, like a rainbow sticker on the staff window, that the staff themselves um, had, were, there was a lot of gender diversity, um, that, you know, she was looking at $6,000 roughly a year for the cost of hormones to prevent her child um, entering into puberty. But at one point, she had received like an $11,000 bill from her pharmacy, and the doctor just held her and said we can we can fill out some forms and did so to help reduce the cost of those costs and she said she felt as though they always put her first above the cost um, of, the, of the income of the practice that they would always show her a bill and say is this okay you know how can we work with you um, i noticed she talked a lot about you know, as a pediatrician, they weren't just treating the child, they were treating the whole family. They offered support in so many ways beyond support groups, but her doctor offered to come in um, when, he, when the office wasn't even open because it was the only day that she and her husband could get to that doctor's office. I mean, the stories are just, I know you know more than I do, like over and over and over again, I want to go to this doctor. This sounds like the most incredible physician. And even though, you know, and she talks about how, you know, you live an hour away going into Philadelphia, like he didn't always require her to go in for a visit. If she had questions, he would talk to her over the phone. I can't get my doctors to talk to me over the phone. So this is possible. And those little things make such a huge difference in someone's life. Absolutely. And I think that uh, one of the takeaways from Bodies and Barriers, queer activists on health, is that there's a lot of potential. There's a lot of opportunity for the healthcare system to truly work for all of us. That uh, the negative experiences so many of us have had can hopefully be experiences uh, for a history book in the future because uh, there's opportunity. There are clinicians that are doing this the right way. There are examples of healthcare happening in an affirming space for LGBT people. And, uh, and hopefully that is more pervasive in the future, that's more common in the future that, that, that we can be looking at these negative experiences as uh, a vestige of the past, not our current situation. We're not there yet. Right now, there's a lot of work that's needed to improve healthcare for all of us. There's so many more stories that need to be told. Um, but uh, if we tell them loudly, uh, if our if our healthcare professionals hear them and listen to them, uh, hopefully change will come. I think we would do a disservice to your book 
if we didn't cover the other end of the spectrum. You know, you take us through the entire lifespan of healthcare, and there's a part that we haven't talked about, which is what happens when we die, what happens when we lose a loved one, and the um, the heartache that somebody who is trans, who is LGBT, may experience with the passing of their partner. So you have a chapter, it's actually the last chapter in the book because we're dealing with death, chapter 23 with um, Reverend Dr. Justin Sabiatanis, and I hope I'm saying his name correctly, um, is a trans man. And when his partner passed, um, went through grief support and could not find an LGBT oriented support group. So had to be the sole LGBT, I think maybe even the sole man to enter into a grief group. It might've been all widows. Am I correct in that? Uh, Justin shares his story about looking for LGBT affirming grief and support and being assured that, um, you know, his identity as a trans person, as uh, as a, uh, a gay person would not be um, would not be different that as, as he says in the book he was told that grief is the great equalizer that everyone would be treated the same and he says that actually that's the crux of the problem that he was treated the same as everyone else and that meant that his identity as a gay trans man was not um, was not recognized that the uniqueness of his grief was not brought up that to bring it up made him feel like he'd be violating that uh, his words, unspoken rule that, uh, that that everyone is the same here, and uh, and he didn't have that outlet to be able to address the pieces of his grief that related to uh, his relationship that that um, that related to his life. Um, and uh, I know that like we in Allentown at Bradbury Sullivan LGBT Community Center, we have an LGBT bereavement support group, but very few. Uh, there's very few LGBT bereavement groups anywhere in the United States, and there are unique differences and unique challenges in how LGBT people want to talk about their relationships. Um, this is very important that uh, when we're talking about end-of-life care, that people can still access LGBT-affirming end-of-life care. Yeah, and you know, uh, he mentions in his in his chapter, um, one man said that by attending our group, he was coming out in public for the first time. He never even took the bereavement days from his work because he was afraid to say he needed them. And when you have a lack of LGBT bereavement groups, you are sometimes forcing people who need that support to out themselves, who maybe had not been out previously. Absolutely. And um, that's one of the reasons that LGBT specific groups are so important, because it provides that safe space for people to talk about the things that they might not feel comfortable talking about in a majority population group. That if, if a group is meant to serve everyone in the same way, it doesn't necessarily create that safe space for people to talk about what makes them different. And uh, he beautifully goes into some of the pain that is caused for a loved one um, in, in LGBT when the partner passes and things that we've we've all heard of. The partner may not be recognized by the family, may be forced to sit in the back of the funeral, or even if a family you know, says they're supportive and inclusive of um, their missing family member who had deceased and, and their relationship, that they don't want that to be outed at the funeral because what would the neighbors say. And how I feel that everybody should read 
this chapter because we all go through death. We all go through this time and knowing how to prepare for it is so important and knowing how we treat others through this process. Yeah, uh, you know, throughout our lives, we will all experience grief at some point. And, um, and, and Justin's story uh, in this book is important because we might hope that that the experience that we will have will be different and it will it, it can be different if we raise this story up now so that the system that provides end-of-life care can be improved so there's a couple of questions i always like to ask on this show adrian if there was one piece of advice that you wish you had received that you would like to pass on to to everybody listening what would that advice be i think that uh the thing that i wish i had thought about much earlier in my activist career and in my own life is uh the importance of being an activist for for healthcare, the importance of participating in health surveys so that uh, the healthcare system can understand that LGBT people experience health disparities, the importance of being out to all of our healthcare providers so that, uh, that we give them the chance to provide uh, the care that we need. Because um, to, to quote from uh, the National LGBT Cancer Network's uh, um, training that they do for hospitals, to treat me, you have to know who I am. You have to be able to, uh, uh, you have to be able to provide care that reflects to, to my life, to our lives. Um, so being out to all of our care professionals and frankly, to ask questions to them. When, when there's healthcare questions we have about our lives, to ask our doctors and say, uh, how come you've never asked me about that? Or I'm really looking for information on this. To expect that they will have that information and when they don't, to ask them why they don't. And to let them know that you hope that next time you come, that they will have the information that you need for your own health. The other question I always like to ask, and usually it's a personal question of where do you see yourself one year, five years, 10 years down the road, but I'm so interested in your thoughts. Where do you see or where would you like to see healthcare, say five years from now, 10 years from now? Well, I see uh, our healthcare system moving in a direction of, uh, you know, hopefully positive direction where there's more conversations about health disparities and health equity. Healthy People 2020, the U.S. government's document that outlines the goal for the U.S. healthcare system from 2010 to 2020, said that health equity is about the attainment of the highest quality health for all people, all people. And uh, right now we're in 2020 and we don't have that. We have not achieved health equity. It's a dream that has not been realized. Uh, my hope is that in the next five to 10 years, our healthcare system continues to move in that direction. And it can only do that if our stories are shared loudly, if healthcare systems prioritize LGBT health, if, uh, if, if healthcare professionals themselves learn about uh, LGBT health issues through their continuing medical education and nursing education that they're required to receive. Um, and, uh, and this is possible if we fight for it, if we ask for it, if we advocate loud enough, if we share our stories, if we talk to our doctors. Um, and so uh, I put this book together, Bodies and Barriers, Queer Activists on Health, because I know that these stories are important. We have to lift them up and we have to hope that our Healthcare providers will listen to them. So please buy a copy, read a copy, give a copy to your doctor, uh, share your own story, uh, let your doctors know that 
that your story is uh, is powerful and that you're hoping that they take it and, and improve care for all their patients. Adrian, thank you so much for pulling this book together. You have done such a beautiful job. I love the advocates that are in here. I tell you what, I personally, I am dying for an audio version of this book because I want to hear their voices <laughs> with the chapters as well. Um, but for, you know, is this only available online? How can somebody buy this book? Bodies and Diaries Square Activist Home Health is available through your favorite local bookstore. And I really want to encourage people to buy it from their local bookstore, uh, many of which are willing to do um, online or phone orders, and some are even offering free shipping right now. So contact your local bookstore to get a copy of Bodies and Barriers, Queer Activists on Health, or buy it online at IndieBound, Amazon, or Barnes & Noble, or from the publisher directly at pmpress.org. Adrian, thank you so much. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. You as well. Join our mission of outreach, education, and support for the transgender community at MyFeminineHeart.com.